following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Meditation is the science of knowing oneself completely. It is the method by which we learn to comprehend and to judge ourselves. Psychologically, as we've been explaining throughout this course, we carry many elements, many conditions, many psychological qualities which trap our potential, our consciousness. And as we've explained, the consciousness is simply the capacity to perceive, to know, to understand, to comprehend. It is a psychological sense of seeing without the need to think, without the need to identify with negative emotion, neither any impulses of our most subconscious, unconscious, and even infraconscious nature, elements that reside within the most profound depths of our psyche, in which religions in different cosmogenies have called hell, which is not a literal place, but it's a symbol, more importantly for us, of a psychological way of being. Because whenever we are filled with affliction, with suffering, we are in hell. Hell is not a place, specifically, in terms of what should really concern us. Instead, what we are psychologically determines where we vibrate within the laws of nature, simply by cause and effect. Certain actions produce suffering. Certain actions produce harmony. And to be able to distinguish within ourselves psychological states that are beneficial from psychological states that are detrimental has been known in different traditions by many names. 
Some people have called it intuition. To know right from wrong. Not from some moral sense, but from the understanding that psychologically certain actions produce harm. Psychologically. Produce suffering. While other actions produce the happiness and genuine contentment of our soul. So intuition is the ability to know how to act in life. To perform actions that are beneficial, that promote the happiness of others, as well as our own well-being. Some people have called this intuition by the voice of conscience. Conscience is the whisper in the heart that tells us certain behaviors produce suffering. And that certain actions, whether it be at work, with our family, with our loved ones, create conflict. And so meditation is how we resolve conflict. How we silence the mind. Not through force. By gagging it. By repressing it. But simply looking at it. Looking at your own mind. And observing what qualities condition and shape our experience. This is a psychological sense that typically in humanity is very atrophied because people don't know how to use it. Specifically, people when they sit and pursue meditation as a science, as a method, very soon discover the true nature of the mind because we can sit for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, we introspect, and then we realize that the body's agitated. It's impulsive. It wants to move. Likewise, the emotions may be surging with a flux of negativity, of suffering, of fear, of panic. Likewise, the mind carries many memories which seem to surge and fluctuate and move without any order. The mind is wild. And anyone who enters meditation for the first time realizes with great perplexity and astonishment that the mind that we thought we had was unitary is really fractured. It is fragmented. Because every memory, every thought, every preoccupation, all these things which surge in the mind really don't have any order. And of course, this is an overwhelming realization that the mind is really a type of beast that anger, that negative emotions, that conditioning of the psyche is animalistic. And when a meditator discovers this, obviously this is very painful, to discover the true nature of the mind, that it is conditioned within psychological states of suffering, in which all the different mythologies of ancient traditions depicted in symbols how the soul the consciousness must learn to overcome fear hatred pride in oneself it comes to memory the story of Theseus and the Minotaur a Greek myth how Theseus the soul 
must go into a labyrinth in order to discover at the very center what is known as the Minotaur, a mythological beast, half man, half bull. In truth, that is a symbol of qualities like hatred, of wrath, of fear, which we as a consciousness must go into the maze to fight, to confront with serenity and with insight. We go into the mind to discover the secret conditions which trap our energy. Because if you remember in the myth, Theseus goes into the maze and this beast, half man, half bull, is still half human being because the qualities of our consciousness, who we are in our depth, truly traps who we are. There's an essence of humanity in that element. But of course, as we've been explaining in this course, egotistical qualities like hatred, pride, vanity, these are conditions that trap the energy of our psyche and make us vibrate at a very low level of being, a way of thinking, a way of acting. And so, our consciousness is trapped in those conditions, trapped in those elements. And the meditator, through the science of introspection, must learn to go into the mind, into the maze of that intellect in order to find the sources of our suffering, the causes of our suffering, of our egotism, of our negativity. And when you sit to meditate, you may find that you get distracted very easily. The mind wanders. There isn't much focus. Because in the beginning, we realize that the mind is a maze. It's a labyrinth. We get easily distracted. But the method by which we go into the mind and discover ourselves, who we really are, how we know what actions are positive and negative, we call in these studies judgment. The ability to discriminate psychologically what in us is good, what in us is negative. And when we learn to discriminate and judge what psychological states produce happiness or sorrow, we learn to live life with greater rectitude, with responsibility for the happiness of others. Because when we work for the happiness of others, when we eliminate negative emotions, we radiate naturally purity and light for humanity in which they, likewise, people trapped and conditioned with suffering, can learn how to change. So some people call this faculty intuition, to know what is right from wrong. Others call it conscience. The voice that says in our heart that certain qualities in the mind stream are not productive, are not helpful. And it is a quality that we develop in meditation through uh, daily discipline. And of course, one thing I will mention is that the voice of conscience has been represented in different ways. The story of Pinocchio, written by Carlos Collodi, about a story of a young puppet that wants to become a boy of flesh and blood, a human being. He has a helper by the name of Jiminy Cricket, a cricket, 
a small figure that sits on his shoulder and tells him, this is good, this is bad. Don't do this, don't do that. Not out of some dogmatic, authoritarian sense that one should obey some commandment, some, orde- uh, some ordainment, or some type of law that is man-made. But in the story, Jiminy Cricket tends to be ignored. And that's in the story the Pinocchio gets into problems. But he genuinely yearns to become a human being. And of course, in these studies, we emphasize that a true human being, a master of meditation, an angel, has no egotism, no ego no defect, is pure. Someone who is like us that had learned meditation and learned to go against the Minotaur to comprehend it, to understand it, and by the grace of the divine within him, to eliminate. So that that condition is broken and the consciousness is freed, is pure, is united with divinity. So many myths teach this process of meditation in allegorical form. But here we've only mentioned a few from uh, the Greek tradition as well as the Italian literature for children or what is masked as a children's story is really something more profound. In this lecture we'll talk about some symbols and some very well-known stories particularly from the Judeo-Christian Bible, which, read literally, does not detail much except some kind of history, which is not the point. The language of the Bible and many other teachings is symbolic, allegorical. It is not meant to be read literally, as you will see from this lecture. So we'll look at a scripture known as the Book of Judges and talk about its meditative symbolism and also the path of meditation that leads through the maze of the mind towards understanding serenity so as we've been indicating internal meditation is a scientific system to receive information when the wise submerges into meditation he searches for information Meditation is the daily bread of the wise. So what information do we seek? What we seek, or what any genuine practitioner of meditation seeks in him or herself, is to understand the causes of suffering. To understand why we are in pain. Why we are afflicted. Why we are so filled with grief and seemingly no control over the fate of ourselves and humanity. The information we seek is how psychological conditions trap the energy of our soul, so that by comprehending them and seeing them in action, we learn to eliminate them. We learn to break those shells. So this is the path of self-knowledge a path of knowing who we really are. And of course, this takes great courage to confront oneself. 
but to really take responsibility for our actions psychologically. as symbolized in the many myths. And of course, meditation as a, as a science is really effective when it is daily. For meditation to be effective, we have to learn to be consistent. Daily meditation unfolds like a flower, like a rose, something spontaneous, something natural, which really only de- helps us when we see the fruits and results of that discipline in ourselves, in our daily life. So meditation is how we learn to not only confront ourselves and against the negativities of the mind, but better said, to comprehend the beauty of the soul, the beauty of the consciousness, which when it is free of conditions, produces happiness, contentment, Genuine faith, knowledge of the divine, happiness, a type of love that is so profound that it overcomes all obstacles, overcomes all sufferings, overcomes all ordeals. But of course, that sense of knowledge of oneself only develops when we sincerely adopt a daily discipline with this type of exercises some of which we initiated with this lecture, with the mantra Om. So the mantra Om is an effective mantra for providing the soul with energy, with light, so that the consciousness learns to develop or to vibrate with a high level of energy. And that helps to silence the mind, to be serene. Because in the moments of serenity, of peace, we learn to see ourselves as we are. Not as we think. Not as we believe. But in actuality. So one thing we make emphasis with in this teaching is the difference between knowledge and comprehension. Knowledge is of the mind. Comprehension is of the heart. This is from Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology by the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, Samael and Vior. So why study knowledge and comprehension when we study meditation? When we seek to know ourselves and to learn to confront the conditioning of the mind. It's because typically people confuse knowledge that's from the intellect with experience. When you comprehend in yourself how certain actions produce harm, produce pain, we realize with great understanding that to perpetuate those habits, those behaviors, will only lead one down a mistaken path. However, many people may know certain knowledge intellectually, in the mind, with reasoning. And yet, that intellectual knowledge will not produce change in a fundamental sense. An alcoholic knows that alcohol is destructive for him or her, and it continues to indulge in those behaviors. But somebody who comprehends that being alcoholic to consume that element 
To perpetuate that habit is to be destroyed. But to comprehend means to know with your full being, with your full presence, what is helpful and what is not helpful for oneself, for one's psychological well-being. And there are many people who read books on meditation. They have a lot of knowledge intellectually and yet fail to have a sense of genuine contentment, of peace, of serenity, of insight. Comprehension is when you, seeing yourself, how something is destructive, a psychological state, a way of being, a way of perceiving, a way of thinking. And when you comprehend that certain emotions are destructive, you realize with great astonishment and peace that you do not need to invest your energy in those elements which produce pain, not only for ourselves, but for others. You see with great gratitude and serenity that you do not need to suffer anymore because you realize how having created what we call ego, egotism, this negative sense of self, this sense of I, of me, who I am, what I want, what I crave, what I desire. When we stop feeding that negative sense of self, we realize that we don't have to engage with suffering. We don't need to be in pain. It's not necessary. And so meditation leads us to this understanding. When we realize that by acquiring serenity of mind and no longer giving our energies to negative habits which produce certain conflicts, we naturally arrive at a, the intrinsic nature or state of the soul, which is peace. The mind settles like a lake. And when the mind is serene, it can reflect through its waters the images of the heavens, the stars. Divinity can manifest and express through you, through your heart. And when you learn to follow your intuition about, again, the sense of right and wrong, how certain habits are negative, we learn to feed the consciousness. We learn to free ourselves from conditions. So intellectual knowledge doesn't change anyone. University, books, lectures do not produce any change if we don't learn to apply the techniques of meditation in our daily life to acquire information about ourselves and to be willing to look in oneself to see and to comprehend and take responsibility for our own actions, not to blame anyone else for our suffering. There is no one who created our anger. We created that element. And we like to externalize and to blame others, to judge others. But rarely do we like to judge ourselves. And this is the difference between someone who really learns to meditate and somebody who follows, say, some religion or some institution, some politics. Wanting to blame the government, society, a way of thinking, a way of believing. When really the, the truth is, 
with the reason why there is so much conflict is because people don't know how to judge themselves. Conscience. To feed the conscience of how we are responsible for our own actions. How we have to take ownership of our own mind, our own psychological states, and to be willing to change them. So there's a saying from the oral tradition of Islam, it's from Prophet Muhammad, and we study many religions in this tradition because we recognize the universality of meditation amongst many faiths. We study the essence of every religion, not the institution, but the practices which produce change. So Prophet Muhammad, who gave a very beautiful teaching, which is grossly misunderstood today, he stated, an hour of contemplation is better than a year of prayer. So adopting a posture or certain prayers, certain methods in a mechanical sense, don't change, don't change anybody, don't change anything. People go to mosque, to church, to synagogue, and yet they continue to suffer. So these people will need to analyze and to be willing to reflect what are we doing? What are our methods? And in this tradition, we have many methods to teach how to meditate, how to contemplate oneself, and to free oneself from the mind. So prayer by itself, again, if it's mechanical, if we just say it, certain words, without meaning, without concentration, they have no effect. They have no impulse, or better said, impact on our psyche. But if we learn to contemplate the presence of divinity and to follow the voice of our inner conscience, inner judgment, then we learn to change. So I've been explaining just briefly about some stories which many people read literally and don't know how to interpret with understanding from the sense of experience or or meditative science. So we've been talking about judgment. We've talked about some symbols within the Greek myths as well as Pinocchio. But a book that has been greatly misunderstood for millennia is the Judeo-Christian text. We're just going to explore a couple of verses from the book of Judges because it's it's a map or teaching of meditation. And I'll explain some of the symbolism for you to emphasize the struggle that the soul faces with its lower desires, lower defects, negative qualities. Because it's good to recognize and to see that um, when we are, if we are struggling with meditation itself, to understand that there have been others who have already went through this process. And as I said, these beings are known as Buddhas, masters, prophets. So the Bible in the book of Judges talks about how the people of Israel are afflicted and are in great suffering. The word Israel is an acrostic. 
relating to the Egyptian mysteries. Isis, Ra, and the Hebrew El. Isis, Ra, El. The goddess of the, the Egyptian mysteries, the divine feminine, and Ra, or Cyrus Ra, the solar entity known as the Father amongst the Christians, which is an energy, a force. And El in Hebrew means God. If you want to use the Sanskrit equivalent, you say Om. El is Om. And El, amongst the Kabbalists, the mystics of Judaism, depict the Hebrew letter El within uh, the heart. Because your being, your divinity is in your heart. And can fill your whole consciousness if we learn to connect through practice. And so what happened to the people of Israel in this myth is that they did evil or they made wrong in the sight of Jehovah when Ehud was dead. So again, who is this Israel? The people of Israel who need to be freed from, again, the Egyptians and many other people who constantly afflict them. The Philistines, groups of people who are trying to, to eliminate them. These people are the parts of our consciousness, our soul, which are trapped within anger, hatred, vanity, gluttony, laziness, sloth, fear, pain, what we call ego, egotism, desire. And so these parts of Israel, the people of Israel, are the soul that has been fractured and conditioned in all these elements. And we need to learn how to free the consciousness from those conditions. We, learn, we do so through meditation and through the help of our inner divine being, our spirit, our God, Om, or El. The word Jehovah, Yahavah, is a representation of the highest form of divinity, which we'll be exploring in relation to what is known as the Tree of Life, which is a symbolic map of consciousness, which meditators study in order to understand their experiences in meditation. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Jehovah, meaning the soul invested its energy within wrong thinking, wrong feeling, wrong acting. And then this happened when Ehud was dead. And the names in the Bible represent something symbolic. Because the Hebrew word Ehud comes from the Hebrew Echad, which means unity. So the reason why we are in suffering is because we are not in unity. Examine your mind. In one moment, you may be inspired with love. But then the next moment, towards the same person, we feel antagonism, hatred. Then indifference. Then perhaps fear, resentment, jealousy. There's no unity in the mind. The mind is constantly fluctuating. We like to assume that the sense of I that we worship is one. That all the thoughts, feelings, impulses come from one sense of self. But if you observe the mind, as we've been explaining in this course, and in the meditation, you see that 
there are different thoughts, feelings, impulses, which fluctuate. There's no order there. There's no unity there. What we call ego is really a multiplicity. Egos. Different eyes. Myself. Desires. Which constantly fluctuate and take control of the mind, the heart, and the body to act. And when you learn meditation, you begin to see that this dynamic is something very real. But many have not experienced this yet. So what we teach and advise is, again, learn to silence the mind and look, observe yourselves. What certain conditions do you think about ways that you feel and ways that you act in certain circumstances? Perhaps towards the same people, towards different people, towards strangers. And observe, examine your mind. Is there a sense of unity there? Or is there contradiction? Because if we're honest, we see that we are walking contradictions. We are filled with afflictions and sufferings and pains and ordeals. Usually without our knowledge or understanding. This is why in the myth of, a, of Carlos Collodi, he depicted us as a puppet controlled by strings, controlled by egos. And of course, this is a very unpleasant fact to realize in oneself. Especially when you begin meditation, you see the mind is in chaos. And this is why many people run away from meditation because they realize how overwhelming the mind is and they become filled with fear. So when the hood was dead, when the unity of God was dead in, in us, that was when the soul became conditioned in suffering. So we study this glyph in our tradition. This is known as the Kabbalah. This map has ten spheres, or what is known as ten sephirot, which are levels of energy, matter, and consciousness from the most rarefied and pure, divine, to the most material and dense. This is a map that can explain our experiences in meditation. And we'll be explaining this graphic very detailed um, throughout our courses. But here I'd like to introduce just a few concepts for you in order to understand meditation. As well as the book of Judges. Because if you want to interpret what the Bible teaches, you need to know Kabbalah. The word Kabbalah comes from the Hebrew Kabel, which means to receive. To receive knowledge. Not with the intellect. Not from a book. But from meditation. Remember the quote from the beginning of this lecture. Meditation is a means of acquiring information. It's psychological. It's spiritual. And when you want to understand yourself in meditation, and after having certain mystical experiences, you can map your experiences based on this glyph, this dynamic. So this tree of life is not something literally vertical in space, as if heaven's above your head, hell is below your feet. It refers to psychological qualities which integrate, flow, move within oneself in a very dynamic way. So this is a map of our soul, our consciousness. Above we have what is known as the higher worlds, higher dimensions, higher levels of being, of perceiving. And of course, the forces that come from the divine from above, descend 
from this top trinity to a middle trinity, finally to what we call in Hebrew, Malkut, which means kingdom. This is our physical body, our earth. Our physical body is literally an amalgamation of forces which come from above, from the divine. Above this physical body, of which we are all aware of, we have what is known as the vital body, vital energies, called yesod in Hebrew. This is your vital energy. When you wake up in the morning and you go throughout your day, you may sense more or less vitality, energy in yourself to act, to be, to do. In the morning you may have more energy, or in the afternoon, or in the evening you become tired. That relates to this vital force which penetrates our physical body. So even though these spheres look like they're separate, static, they really integrate here and now in oneself. Above our vital energies, we have what is known as what some traditions call the astral body, our emotions, known as hod in Hebrew. Likewise, we have netzach, which means victory, relating to our mind our thoughts. Notice that as we ascend this tree of life, we begin to sense and experience and understand greater subtleties in our psychological constitution. The body is dense, but because our consciousness is also limited, this is typically all we sense or become aware of. But if we're more attentive, if we're observing ourselves, we sense that we have certain vital energy flowing in us morning to evening. Likewise, emotions, emotional states, moods, and thoughts, the mind. In a more rarefied sense, we have what's called willpower, called tifereth. Somebody who has a strong will, a strong urge or impulse to do certain occupations or jobs or things, is working with tifereth, willpower. But most of the time, if we examine ourselves and are honest, we tend to realize that our willpower is usually identified with our thinking, with our feeling, with our energies. It's simply easy to reflect on our own experience, how most of the time we go through our day preoccupied with certain daydreams or memories, certain emotional states, or vital forces in our in our inner constitution, as well as our physical body. Above this willpower, we have something more rarefied, which most people have no consciousness of. When we sit to meditate, we may begin to sense our body as we relax it, our vital energies, by working with a mantra. As we worked with a mantra, Om, we were working with the vital energy to saturate our heart to send that energy circulating through our nervous systems. So by working with this energy, known as Yasod, which is called the foundation of Kabbalah, we learn to ascend up this tree of life to higher levels of being. Which is why it's good before meditating to do a mantra, work with energy, so that the mind stabilizes. And notice that the heart and the mind become still when we work with that force. But of course, all this is only possible when we work with our willpower. Do you have the will to sit still for a few minutes 
and to pronounce a mantra so that the body settles, the mind settles, the heart settles. Likewise, the thing to remember is that willpower doesn't mean somebody who is aggressive. Real willpower is serene, peaceful. There's no effort there. In the beginning of meditation, we struggle because the mind is in affliction. It's caught up in memories and daydreams. But when you learn to go deeper in meditation, or better said, develop your concentration, you realize that you require less effort to be still. And then naturally you sit with peace in one posture, and that's when the doorway to real meditation can begin. So everything we're doing here is preliminary. But one thing I will mention about this tree of life in relation to this lecture is that we have something divine within us represented by the top five sephiroth of this tree of life. We have no, what's known as the consciousness, giburah in Hebrew, which means justice, judgment. This consciousness is beyond will. It is simply the ability to perceive. But that quality tends to be very conditioned in us, as I've been saying, very limited. But even beyond the consciousness, there's something more divine, known as chesed, which means mercy. This is the Hebrew El. This is Om, your being, your spirit. That spirit is God. The being is presence, understanding, happiness without limits. And when people say that they are spiritual, what they really should say is that they have God incarnated. Because to, to say that one is spiritual means to say that I have the spirit within me, active. Because chesed is the spirit. There are many confusions about what spirit is. People confuse spirit with soul. The spirit, God, is. But the soul, our willpower, is created. It has to be developed in meditation. Because again, the ability to focus our will on one thing is only developed through daily discipline. Meditation is the daily bread of the wise. And in order to enter meditation, we have to be able to focus on one thing, like a mantra, a sound, and not get distracted. Because we tend to be distracted by our thinking, our emotions, sensations of the body, and our physical birth. If our body is moving in meditation, it means that we're not meditating. So notice that this glyph is very profound. And it's simple. It just takes a little familiarity. But uh, even beyond this spirit, we have something even more divine, which is this top trinity. Our spirit, our inner God, emanates from what is known as the Christian trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are not people, but energies, forces within us which need to be incarnated or developed. Some traditions have referred to this trinity amongst the Nordics as Odin or Wotan, Baldur and Thor. The Egyptians referred to it as Osiris, uh, Oros and Isis. The Buddhists use different names. Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. 
Every tradition uses these different uh, definitions or terms for the same thing. This is the purest energy of the cosmos. This light governs all of existence, from the atom to a galaxy. And we have that energy in us, which we can liberate if we use certain practices. And so the word Jehovah in Hebrew relates to this second sephirah on the tree of life, known as chokmah, which is wisdom. We have keter, the father, the crown in Hebrew. Chokmah, meaning wisdom, insight, perception. And then we have binah, meaning intelligence. Chokmah in Hebrew, in its sacred name, because each sephirah has a Hebrew term associated with it. The sacred name of Chokmah is Jehovah. That's the energy known as Christ amongst the Gnostics, whom Jesus incarnated. So he wasn't the only one who incarnated that light. But any meditator can, if they know how. So I want to just emphasize that from the highest levels of existence, we have light which descends and slowly conditions itself until reaching this physical body. It materializes. And that energy, if it's conditioned within our anger, within our fears, within our resentments, becomes what is known as the hell realms. What is called in Hebrew, klipot. Klipha means shell. Klipot means conditions or shells in Hebrew. So every ego, sense of I, whether it be pride or resentment, gluttony, etc., is a shell that traps our consciousness. And so every myth of the great hero is about descending from this top trinity down below to Malkut and entering the maze, the hell realms, in order to confront one's egotism, one's desires. And then by eliminating those desires, we learn to free the consciousness that is trapped there and return it back to the light above with knowledge, with understanding. One thing I will mention is that in the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, he went into the maze and killed the beast. But the way that he got out of the maze was by using what was called Ariadne's thread. So in the myth, in order to not get lost in the maze, to find his way back, he had a thread with him, which he unrolled as he moved through the, the labyrinth until finding the Minotaur, killing the animal, and then following the thread back out to the open, the sunlight. Dante, in his myth, The Divine Comedy, explains that the descent into the inferno is easy, but the return is hard. Because when you are meditating, you may see certain defects and desires which you want to work on. But you have to follow your conscience to find your way out of the maze, your judgment your consciousness. And so, we elaborate on how the light returns from these infernal regions back to the higher levels of being, of consciousness. Because real yoga or religion is about taking all that light that is trapped in conditions and integrating it with the being, with the divine. Yoga comes from the Sanskrit yug, to reunite. Religion comes from the Latin religare, which means to reunite. So that light becomes conditioned and more material, more dense, in greater states of suffering, the further it descends down this 
the shadow of the tree of life. As we reach at the very bottom of existence. Again, these are symbols. They are different dimensions that exist that we can access in the dream state through meditation. But more importantly, this refers to our daily state of being. And so Jehovah sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Sold the Israelites into the hand of or Yabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hatzor. So I've included some Hebrew terms because this meaning is very deep. The word for light is Aor. Let there be light, and there was light. And what is that light? Is the awakened consciousness, our soul, when it is pure. It is light, it is harmony, it is peace, it is contentment. But that light, the light of Israel, the light of the divine, is trapped. That light, when it becomes inverted, becomes part of the negative psychological qualities we're familiar with. So, as a result of having misused our energies and our consciousness, that light is dislocated, disconnected from Jehovah, and then enters into these infernal states of being. So what is Canaan in the Bible? When the Bible talks about different lands, they're referring to Malkut. When the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, Egypt is a symbol of your body, within which is contained our desires, because our ego, our defects, act through our body. So, and what is that inverted light the Hebrew, calls, the Hebrew term for it is chatzor, because it sounds like aor, the light, but it's trapped in the lower spectrum of light, because the higher spectrum of light is ultraviolet, but the most dense form is infrared. So there's a spectrum. The tree of life represents this. So Jehovah sold the Israelites to the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in chatzor, meaning the soul was disconnected and trapped in this body. Trapped within Hatsor, the inverted light, the conditions of mind. The captain of whose host was Sisera. So the sound Sisera, or the name Sisera, is a representation of what the Bible calls the serpent. There's a mantra amongst the Gnostics, the letter S, which we pronounce in order to work with what is known as the serpentine fire of Kundalini, the fire of the divine, which is in our Cossacks. So you can do that mantra, S, to make the energies rise up the spine to the brain. But of course, there's a duality to that serpent, as represented in the Bible. That, light, that serpent that healed the Israelites in the wilderness, raised by Moses on a staff, is a symbol of the kundalini rising up the spine, if you're familiar with Hinduism. But of course, there is a tempting serpent in which that energy descends down and forms what is called the tail of the demons within the astral body of a human being. So these are symbols, but also there are certain things that they represent that are psychological truths. And so Sisera is that negative crystallization of those energies which dwelt in Haroshit Goim, the land of the Goim. And what is a Goim? It's a Hebrew term 
which many Jews believe refers simply to people who don't follow Judaism. But if you look at the word goyim, you hear ego, backwards. So what does it mean to be a goyim? It means to be like any one of us, even if we're Jewish. Because to have desire, egotism, is to be goyim, to be exiled from the heavenly kingdom of God, the being. So to be a real Jew, in an objective sense, is to have this light incarnated. And so the children of Israel, the soul, cried out unto Jehovah, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So again, these are symbols. If you're interested in learning more about what the numbers mean in the Bible, I recommend you listen to our course we've been giving on the Eternal Tarot, which is available on our website. We won't go into too much detail here, but the number nine is very symbolic. It represents, again, how we use our energies. The ninth sephirah of the tree of life. But of course, that light, that energy tends to be conditioned in us. We use our vitality in the wrong way, with negative habits. We waste energy in many behaviors, which are not conducive for our spiritual well-being. So that 20 years is, again, symbolic, referring to the Kabbalah, as we've been explaining. So who is the one who helps Israel in this process is known as Deborah. She is a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot. She judged Israel at that time. She was, a, in the Bible, represented as a great warrior and a prophetess who helped the Israelites in that narrative to achieve freedom against Sisera and his armies, or better said, the ego and its demons, its legions. So who is Deborah? She dwelt underneath a palm tree between Ramah and Bethel and Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So what is judgment? Is Geburah. Justice. Our conscience. The sense of right and wrong. She dwells underneath a palm tree represented by this mystical sphere known as Da'at and the Kabbalah, which means knowledge. Some people have called it alchemy. The science of transmuting the base lead of the personality into the gold of the spirit by the work of energy. So she dwells beneath that tree, meaning works like Buddha did, meditating under the Bodhi tree until he achieved enlightenment. If you're familiar with the Buddhist mythology. So Gibra, our soul, our divine consciousness, dwells beneath this palm tree between Ramah and Bethel because this glyph is represented as three pillars. One on the left, one on the right, one in the middle. Ramah is the left pillar of the tree of life. Bethel is the right. And the mountain Ephraim is represented by the center of this glyph, Tiferet. To have dreams in the internal worlds when you're meditating, if you experience seeing a mountain or climbing a mountain, it means you're entering the higher dimensions with your spiritual work. And so the mountain represents the path that leads from, again, the valleys of the Klipot, the infernal worlds, up towards the world of heaven, or it is called the, the heavens in the different mythologies. The Israelites, in order to receive help from Deborah, had to climb the mountain 
Ephraim to receive judgment. It's a symbol. It means that God doesn't come out of the clouds to give us some kind of magical experience. Although that can happen, and it's very beautiful and necessary. But to obtain comprehension of our faults, God doesn't come out of the clouds to give it to us. Instead, we have to work, raise our level of being up within ourselves towards this higher sephirah, tivereth, the mountain. By learning to overcome our body, our energies, our emotions, our mind, with willpower in meditation. That is how you climb Ephraim, the mountain, to receive judgment. It's a symbol. If you want to achieve comprehension in yourself, peace, understanding, you have to raise your level of being. This myth is also very beautiful, explains other things relating to many other mythologies, such as the teachings of the Kundalini in Hinduism. If you're familiar with the force of the Kundalini, it is the serpentine power of the divine feminine, which rises up the spine from the base chakra, Muladhara, up the spine to the brain. So in the Bible, a mountain also represents the spinal column, which in one must climb, the prophets must climb in order to receive the commandments of the divine, like Moses did on Mount Sinai. It's a symbol how he raised the energies of the divine up his spine through uh, certain practices in order to illuminate his intellect. So if you see the halos of the saints and many myths, it's because those heroes, those masters, those prophets worked with energy and illuminated the mind. They climbed the mountain and then when they illuminated their crown chakra, like Moses or Muhammad or whatever prophet you want to refer to, that's when they were able to receive knowledge, understanding, commandments from the being, direct experiences in meditation. So the Bible and the book of Judges refers to that force of the serpent as Barak. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinuam, out of Kadesh in Naphtali, and said unto him, Have not Jehovah... The Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw towards Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun. So, in this story, you see that Deborah and Barak go to war against the armies of Sisera as a symbol of the consciousness going into battle against our desires. And so, how does our consciousness work? against desire by working with the kundalini. And so, they, she says, go and draw towards Mount Tabor. Again, the mountain refers to the sephirah, the heart, Tiferet. Take with yourself 10,000 men, meaning the 10 sephirah. Integrate all the parts of your, your being within you in meditation in order to have command of yourself, in order to work against desire, against defects. And I will draw Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, unto thee to the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into thine hand. So what is that river Kishon? It is your vital energies. Because how you use your vitality, your vital forces in meditation, determines whether you will have that inner strength to work against your own defects. But of course, Deborah says, I will fight against Sisera, which is the fire of our own divine energies, which has been inverted. 
which is negative, the tempting serpent of Eden, a symbol of the misuse of our energies, which by misusing that force, we were kicked out of bliss, Eden, because the word Eden means bliss. It isn't a literal place in the Mesopotamia in the Middle East, but refers to the original state of the consciousness before its conditioning. So in the myth, Sisera is killed by a woman named Yael. And even the name Yael is very symbolic too, because the word Yah, if you know Kabbalah, is yod Hey, reading right to left, because Hebrew is written from right to left, representing the Father, known as Keter in the Kabbalah, the height of our being, of our divinity. El, as I said, is your spirit, your inner God. So this woman is literally the forces of the divine and the spirit within us who works in order to eliminate our defects. She is part of our conscience. So in the myth, what she does is she takes a hammer and a chisel and pummels his head in the myth in order to kill him when he sleeps. But first what happened was that he, she brought Sisera into her tent or into a tent and brought him milk in order to put him to sleep. When he was asleep, she killed him. These are symbols. How when you work with vital energy, like Om, with mantras, sacred sounds, the mind settles, becomes serene. And then from a state of serenity, you put your defects into an inactive state. Your egotism, your desires. So that when the mind settles, you can learn to look inside in meditation and comprehend the causes of suffering. And then when you see your own desires or a certain defect you want to work on, you take the hammer of willpower and the chisel of understanding and slay it. So we mentioned in the previous lecture in this course how developing concentration to focus on one thing is willpower, is essential. The next step is developing insight, the ability to perceive images in the mind clearly, to see through the sense of observation of ourselves, self-observation, imagination, the ability to perceive psychic imagery. So in the book of Judges, there's a song, extolled above woman be Yael, extolled above woman in the tent. He asked for water, she gave him milk which is the energies of our vital forces, referring to the creative energies of sexuality, which we'll be talking about uh, tantrism and many teachings relating to what is known as uh, alchemy and the perfect matrimony and other lectures. But the work with the vital forces in you, the creative energies in you, by working with mantras, om, you circulate that force in you, it's like milk, nourishment for the soul. So, as I said, silence the mind and then you can work on your, yourself. She brought him cream in a lordly dish. She stretched forth her hand to the nail, her right hand to the workman's hammer, and she smote Sisera. She crushed his head. She crashed through the, and transfixed his temples. The word Yael signifies an ibex, a goat. And again, there's many symbols here. The sheep separating from the goats in the Christian tradition, a symbol of how one is either purified, a lamb, following the teachings of the divine, or Christ, and the goat, 
meaning a person with egotism of desires. So Yael was, literally her name means a goat, a desert-dwelling goat. Because any one of us who begins meditation is filled with desires, defects. So symbolically, as in the Christian symbols, we are goats. And by purifying the soul, one becomes a sheep. Interesting etymology. So how do we work with the force of conscience, of judgment, of Deborah? We work with mantras. There's a song in the book of Judges which says, Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. The word for awake, we've included the Hebrew, is ur, which is similar etymologically to the word aur, which means light. So awake, Deborah, awake the consciousness. Awake our soul to its true nature, its peaceful nature, its serenity, its compassion. You do so by working with uh, songs, which are mantras. Utter a song, it says, dabar, in Hebrew, to utter, to speak. So the word Deborah, Deborah, has these Hebrew letters, Dalet, Bet, Resh, Dabar, Urah. So if you want to work with your inner judgment, you can work with those sacred sounds to empower your soul, your concentration. Arise, Barak, referring to, again, the Kundalini, which rises in the spine. Lead thy captivity captive, meaning take control of your situations and learn to live with greater rectitude and love. So who is this Barak? The Muslim tradition teaches some interesting symbols. In the ascension of the Prophet Muhammad, he wrote on a creature called Al-Burak, which literally means the lightning. So what is that lightning? It's in your spine which is actually better said contained in the chakra muladhara and needs to awaken so that by riding that creature up the spine, the energies of the forces, we ascend towards the heavens as symbolized in the Muslim myth. So Barak is that energy or Al-Barak which helped Deborah fight against the afflictions of the mind. And we'll be giving courses about the mystical teachings of Islam known as Sufism. We gave a course called the Sufi path of self-knowledge, which explains some of these interesting symbols uh, and in relation to the path of meditation. So we'll read a few excerpts from some Sufi scriptures, which are very valuable. So in these teachings, we study the path of remembrance of the divine. So meditation is about remembering our own inner divinity by developing serenity and insight so that we learn to connect and strengthen our connection with that presence. We do so by following the voice of our inner judgment, conscience, our our heart, our intuition, how certain behaviors are negative or harmful. The way that we can empower that remembrance is by working with sacred sounds, as I've been mentioning. So the Sufis, the mystics of Islam not to be confused with the orthodoxy, has some very interesting explanations about how to remember the divine. So we work with mantras to strengthen that inner judgment and to be aware mindfully throughout our day 
in a state of attention. Because if we want to learn to meditate, what's necessary is to learn to be observant all day. Because meditation, when you sit to close your eyes and relax, is only an extension of your daily practice, your daily life. So learning to be mindful throughout the day and not being distracted in the mind is the beginning. If you're washing your dishes, don't think of other things. If you're driving your car, don't talk on the cell phone. Don't listen to the radio. Just drive. Don't think about what you're going to do later, but be mindful of where you're at. The reason why there's so many accidents is because people are asleep, consciously. They may be driving and physically active, but as a consciousness, they're distracted. Their mind is elsewhere. Their emotions are elsewhere. Their body's doing one thing, but they're not really present in the body. And so remembrance is strengthened when we work with mantras, which is known as dikir amongst the Sufis. So remembrance is a powerful support on the path to the divine, the being, glorious and majestic. Indeed, it is the very foundation of this Sufi, or we can say Gnostic path. No one reaches God save by continual remembrance of Him, our inner Om, our spirit. There are two kinds of remembrance, that of the tongue and that of the heart. The servant attains perpetual remembrance of the heart by making vocal remembrance. It is the remembrance of the heart, however, that yields true effect. Meaning to pronounce verbally certain mantras, but to do it with concentration. Because if you vocalize but are not mindful of what you're doing, there's no power there. We're distracted. Therefore, it is remembrance of the heart that yields true effect. When a person makes remembrance with his tongue and his heart, Simultaneously, with concentration, he attains perfection in his wayfaring, or her wayfaring, to be focused. So concentration is important. If you want certain mantras to be effective and to produce greater depth of understanding and concentration, you've got to invest everything you have into that practice. Don't think of other things. And let your mind be immersed in those vibrations. As I said, be like the bee that is immersed in the flower or the pollen as it's creating honey. So the Sufis also teach that it's good in the beginning to work with a mantra that helps to strengthen our heart, our conscience. However, many practitioners write to us through letters and correspondences that Many people and many students uh, perform certain mantras, but still they don't feel like they have any results, any experiences. So the thing to think about with that is to revise. What is the psychological state we are in when we engage in a practice? As I started this uh, meditation, what is your mental states? What are your moods? What are your qualities? What are you feeling? What are you thinking now? Become aware of that. Relax. Breathe deep then begin a sacred mantra. So that there is sweetness or genuine, genuine power in that practice. Because as the Sufis teach, a group of wayfarers complain to Abu Uthman, we make vocal remembrance of God Most High, but we experience no sweetness in our hearts. He advised, give thanks to God Most High for adorning your, at least your limbs with obedience. Meaning at least you're consistent. Because some people begin a mantra one day and and don't finish it, don't continue it. 
So the thing to remember is it's good to be diligent with one's practices. In this course, we've been talking about three stages of comprehension. We've talked a lot about discovery, self-observation, to see ourselves, to observe, to be mindful. By learning to observe ourselves, like a director watching an actor, we begin to gain information or acquire knowledge of our conditioning of mind. So that by seeing it, we go home, we go to meditate, we go to judge our defects. So in the beginning, we learn to gather data. Again, what are the thoughts, feelings, and impulses we experience whenever we engage at work in the morning with friends, our boss, our coworkers? Analyze, what are the qualities that go on within us whenever we interact with other human beings? And in that way, you learn to discover your defects in action. And I recommend, if you haven't heard those lectures yet, uh, to do so. It'll give greater context for this, this lecture. But we've been talking a lot about judgment, following our intuition, which is the path of meditation. As you're beginning to discover yourself in action, finding defects that you never suspected you had, you take that information, that sense of remorse, that sense of responsibility, and go home, relax, meditate, silence the mind, and learn to ask for help from your inner being. Work with a mantra. Empower your heart with energy. And then pray and ask my divine being, show me and help me to understand what I observed in myself today. Perhaps it was anger. Perhaps it was fear. Perhaps it was lust. A quality that you notice produces suffering in you and that you want to remove. The next step is execution, which is prayer. When you comprehend a certain condition of mind fully, then you can ask for its elimination within you by the help of your Divine Mother, Kundalini, the Divine Feminine. And as we've been discussing also in our courses of meditation, the first stage of worship is silence, as Prophet Muhammad taught. So silence of mind is generated when you learn to relax. Don't identify with your thinking, your feeling, your impulses, negativity, negative emotions. Those things will sap you of your energy, will make you weak. So to have a mind that is in silence, a mind that is able to be intuitive, it's necessary to observe, relax, be aware. As I mentioned, when you're aware of yourself and you relax throughout the day, your body becomes less tense, your mind is relaxed. If you don't invest your negative qualities with so much energy, when you go home to meditate, you can sit in, in a minute, immediately enter meditation. Easy. Because your body's not tense, your mind's not tense. You, you're not depleted of energy. So silence occurs naturally, spontaneously, when you fulfill the necessary requisites, meaning follow your conscience. If we're investing our energy into psychological states that are harmful, the mind becomes a churning chaos, overwhelmed, an ocean that is in the middle of storm and the flux of tides which overwhelm the mind. But if you naturally let, just observe it like you're in a helicopter viewing from the sky, you can observe the tides and gradually the storm will settle on its own because you're not churning along with it, going with the flow. 
So silence occurs in levels. There's levels of introductory teaching relating to concentration or serenity, and there's more higher levels of serenity attained by people who have entered meditation very deeply. So Abu Bakr al-Farisi mentioned in a, a scripture called Principles of Sufism, a very beautiful teaching. If one's homeland is not silence, he is talking to excess, even though he is silent with the tongue. Silence is not confined to the tongue, but concerns the heart and all the limbs. So if we've sat to meditate, we may have found that even though our body is quiet, we, see, we hear in the mind, we feel in the heart a constant commentary, a chatter. The mind wanting to label things, point at things, explain things. The mind is like a monkey, attached, craving, always wanting to move. It indicates that the mind is not serene. We're constantly grasping at the external world. The body wants to move. It's, a, it's an animal that needs to be tamed. So silence doesn't occur just with the physical tongue, but mentally. If you don't want your mind to be overflowing with thoughts, observe. Don't invest your energy with it. Don't identify yourself with that. But serenity naturally occurs when you distance yourself from that internal chatter. So silence for the common people is with their tongues. But silence for the Gnostics is with their hearts. Meaning those who really know the being, the divine, do so because they've attained some type of internal silence, inner serenity, in which they're not influenced by thinking so much, but instead are relaxed, at peace. Yet there is silence for lovers, meaning prophets, by restraining the stray thoughts that come into their innermost beings. So that's a stage of serenity or concentration in which one sees a distraction in the mind before it even emerges. So this is well discussed in our course on Gnostic Meditation on our website, as well as uh, the lecture called Calm Abiding, the Stages of Serenity. But serenity occurs in levels. And that inner serenity is natural and spontaneous. It is not forced. So people think that by learning that concentration has to be something uh, aggressive, that one has to be exerting some type of energy or force in order to meditate. But the reality is that serenity is natural, relaxed, spontaneous, at peace. So comprehension is, or judgment occurs naturally when we are at peace, when the mind is silent. Comprehension emerges like a spark, an insight that emerges in the mind when you're not looking for it, when you're simply concentrated, relaxed, at peace. Comprehension replaces exertion when one tries to comprehend the truth intimately hidden in the secret depths of each problem. We do not need any exertion to comprehend each and every defect that we carry hidden within the different levels of the mind. This is from the Revolution of the Dialectic. In our previous lecture, we talked about the dialectic of consciousness. How the consciousness represented by Christ in this image only knows how to receive insight, intuition, understanding from the being. And the devil on the right is a representation of our ego, the mind that points towards materialism, egotism, desires. So that's the difference between 
a mind that is distracted and a mind that is concentrated. And in this myth, Christ was tempted in the devil, by the devil in the wilderness. It's a symbol of how we in meditation learn to overcome the distractions of the mind in order to overcome it. So I mentioned to you in the Kabbalah, the word wisdom is simply the ability to perceive, to judge, to know. We have an image of the Last Judgment painted by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. The word judgment relates etymologically to the word wisdom. Wisdom is the power of perception, of knowing, of seeing, which occurs spontaneously in us when we learn to look, to observe, and not to anticipate what we may see, but simply engage in the act of looking, of seeing. So the word wisdom is derived from vid, the deer, to see, and dom, judgment. Thus wisdom alludes to that which one can see with the senses of the soul and of the innermost, our spirit, our being. To the wise judgments, to the wise judgments which must be based on the ultrasensorial perceptions and not simply on dogmatic intellectualism or vain professional sufficiency which are already in declination and decrepitude. So again, the intellect cannot know the truth. It can store knowledge, ideas, beliefs, concepts, memories. But real wisdom is when you learn to see in yourself the causes of your suffering. It is the power of perception, of knowing. So we learn to develop light through meditation through seeing, through observing ourselves. We gain genuine contentment and serenity, happiness. When we learn to experience what perception is, what light is, the qualities of the being, the qualities of our inner God. So the Sufis and the Quran also teach that this sense of Understanding is represented by light. Because light is the power of seeing. With light, we know. We, we understand. So to have light in meditation means to have experiences. So you may have the experience when your mind is silent, in which your body falls asleep, and you as a consciousness enter into the dream state, the dream world, and experience the higher dimensions of that tree of life we've been looking at. You climb Mount Tabor, or Mount Ephraim, you enter the higher regions of the divine in order to converse face-to-face with your innermost God. So a person who has that experience in meditation is obviously very different from those who haven't because with that type of experience comes conviction, what we call real faith, real judgment. Because then by having that help from your inner God, you learn to help others and to help yourself, more importantly, so that you can be a benefit So concerning the saying of God Most High, or one who was dead, we have brought him to life. Surah 6, verse 122. A Sufi said, someone who was dead of mind, but God Most High brought him to life with the light of insight and set for him the light of divine manifestation and direct vision. He will not be like someone who walks unconscious with the people of unconsciousness. It's easy to see that 
after having those experiences, we realize that humanity is really dead spiritually. They lack genuine understanding. But with that understanding comes the determination to, again, help them to experience that for themselves. It is said that when insight becomes sound, when your judgment, your perception is very clear in meditation, the possessor progresses to the level of contemplation. Meditation. Or the Arabic is mushahida, which relates to the Arabic saying of uh, the Declaration of Faith, the shahida, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Many people recite that intellectually. But have they meditated and experienced in the higher dimensions, talking with their inner being, or Allah, their God, their El, their Om, their spirit? The truth is that they don't. So are they really Muslim in the objective sense? You can say that they're not. Because if you experience your divine being in the higher dimensions, in meditation, then you bear witness. You say, I see my God face to face. Therefore, there is no God but God. And Muhammad is his prophet, or Krishna is his prophet, or Buddha is his prophet. Many teachers, one light. So that process of seeing is inner judgment. And the path of inner judgment is like a, is a, like a staircase. We, do, we discussed in our previous lectures about the level of being, how the ascension to a path of Genuine spirituality is like climbing a staircase. And to have a dream in the internal worlds, your dreams, your dreams themselves are in meditation, that you're climbing a staircase means that you're going to higher levels of being. You're experiencing higher states of consciousness. And uh, that's, uh, I believe that's per, uh, from uh, iStock. It was um, Alice and uh, Alice in uh, Wonderland climbing a staircase. Um, or something symbolic of that nature. Because the soul is, you know, we could say feminine, whether in a male body or a masculine body, because the soul receives the forces from above. It's receptive. And so one who sees with the light of insight of a spiritual type sees with the light of truth. Because when you see a problem, when you see a defect for what it is, and you don't make excuses for it or justify it or repress it, but simply observe, you can comprehend it. And that's how you arrive at judgment, conscience. In the beginning, we follow our hunch, our intuitions, that certain psychological states are destructive. And by learning to comprehend them deeper and deeper in meditation, we develop light. The very substance of his knowledge comes from God because your being gives you that understanding, unmixed with either negligence or forgetfulness, meaning negligence referring to, to begin meditation and then to stop to be negligent, to not work. Because this is a spiritual work. Very difficult, but it is rewarding because it provides the, the beauty of the soul within oneself. And forgetfulness, meaning to not forget what you're doing. You sit to meditate, you have a specific practice, you're going to review your day, what you observed in yourself, or take an object to meditate on, like a candle, a stone, a picture, and you want to understand a certain scripture or whatever it is you want to meditate on. You have to have the focus to the point that you don't forget what you're doing when you sit. If you forget what you're doing when you sit to meditate, it means that we're distracted, we're forgetful. So indeed, it is a judgment of the truth flowing from the tongue of a servant. Because when you have that knowledge for yourself, then it uh, becomes crystallized in you. We'll conclude by stating that 
the way to develop meditation, meditative practice is by following our inner judgment, our inner conscience. Again, the sense of right and wrong. The human being who allows that which is called self-judgment or inner judgment to express itself in a spontaneous manner within, within will be guided by the voice of the consciousness. Thus he will march on the upright path. Meaning by learning to live with attentiveness and consciousness in our daily life, our work, our job, our career, we learn to do our work not only better, but we naturally help humanity and enter deeper states of awareness. Do you have any questions? Yes. Sure. Uh, if you want to experience the divine through some type of samadhi in meditation, and the word samadhi means ecstasy, where your consciousness is liberated from its conditions so that it perceives without egotism in the higher worlds. To have a samadhi, I like to quote, uh, to answer that question about having samadhi, I like to quote for you Rumi, great Sufi poet. He said, Finding love, the divine, is not by seeking it, but instead looking for all the obstacles you placed to obstruct it. So that love is your inner God, your spirit, Om. And if you want to know that being in you, the way to develop that light and have those experiences is by working on your defects. Because remember the Bible says, let there be light, and there was light. From the darkness, God spoke and said, that verse. From the darkness of our ignorance, light emerges. You develop light by working on your ego, egos, comprehending them. Because when you eliminate your egos, you're extracting the genie from the bottle. And when you extract the genie from the bottle, like in the myth, you integrate those conscious qualities. And then you naturally are awake in the higher worlds. When your body's asleep, physically, and you're, in, in your, and you're traveling in the astral plane, the world of dreams your dream states. So if you learn to awaken consciousness physically in that way, then you uh, have easier access in the, when you're dreaming or when you're meditating. So samadhi occurs naturally when you remove the conditions that trap your consciousness, which is why even Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote in his Thus Spoke Zarathustra, an esoteric text, modeled as philosophy, he states that, I love he who does not make any excuses for him or herself, but instead doesn't reach for the stars first, but decides to descend in order to be a sacrifice. So that in being a sacrifice, one can be uh, of service. This is the very beginning of that text. So symbolically, what he's talking about is you want to experience heaven. We all want that. To see the stars of divinity, 
in the internal worlds to reflect God in us. We want to go to heaven, but the, the reality is that we're, we're trapped down here. We're trapped in the, in, in, um, by our egotism in the valley of Klipot. But in order to get out to experience those dimensions, those, those realms, those realities, you have to climb the mountain. You do it by working with where you're at. And not worrying about having experiences. Because many people, if they, they read certain books, such as by Samael and Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, and get very inspired. You know, people read that and they say, I want to talk to my inner God. I want to know my being. And many have that inspiration, but in order to actualize the experience of your God, you have to work in, um, on what you can see here and now. Because your being will give you experiences as you're working to change yourself. Because personally, I remember many years ago, before I found uh, the Gnostic tradition, I was uh, studying many schools of meditation and other teachings. And then, you know, I was going back and forth with certain places and things and scriptures and books. And what I decided was, I'm going to, you know, what I, I was following my inner judgment, my conscience, about changing certain habits that I was engaging in that I knew was destructive for myself. And as I started to renounce those behaviors and not going back, comprehending how that behavior was wrong, I started to have experiences like I did when I was a teenager in the dream world. And then in that way, when my body was asleep, I was awake in the astral plane and I received certain teachings about my development. And I remember climbing a staircase, being led by a woman up a stairs. And that woman is, was my divine mother, my being, my divine mother Kundalini, who was showing me, you're ascending, you're ascending up this path, but be careful. She was warning me about certain things. Yes? So, uh, yeah, so, so the torch is light, developing insight. You have an experience of seeing fire or light, means your consciousness. It's a symbol of that. Because consciousness is the ability to perceive, to see. And a wolf, we've been talking about in Arcanum 5, the fifth card of the Tarot on our website. So that symbol of the wolf is a symbol of what we call karma. And karma is a law that is governed by divine beings, as we've been explaining. So a wolf, I've had experiences of wolves too. You know, and the wolf, if it's attacking you, it means the, the law is against you, the divine law. Because we committed some kind of wrong, and then we have, we have to face consequences. But if it's calm, it means it's good. It means the law is at bay, and perhaps, you know, I know in the beginning of my path, I had certain situations postponed or withheld from me as a result of changing certain habits. And because I made those changes, they said, okay, you, don't have, you, you prevented this from happening. And they showed me, you know, what would have happened to me if I had continued along that mistaken path. So dreams are very symbolic. So to, to interpret them literally is a mistake. But you learn uh, how to interpret dreams by studying Kabbalah, the, the, which is the symbolic language of the divine. Any questions or comments? So I invite you to study some of the resources we have available. And we'll be giving more courses on meditation as well as
practices you can use to develop your discipline in order to see suffering and to develop genuine serenity. So we gave a course on meditation on our website, which you can study. We'll be giving more material of that, of that type on uh, chicagonosis.org. Especially, but we invite you to study some of the literature written by Samael and Vior, who is the focus of the, whose writings are the focus of the school, primarily because of their efficacy, their directness, and simplicity. And uh, in relation to some other schools, many people tend to get lost in intellectual knowledge. So I've been explaining a lot about the Kabbalah because, you know, very rich and complex, but it's very simple when you boil it down refers to how do you meditate? How do you control the mind? How do you learn about yourself? You do so by becoming serene, observing yourself. So if you haven't heard the previous lectures in this course, I recommend you study them. We talked about discovery, judgment, execution. Discover your defects. Work on what you can perceive in yourself that you can change. And then when you gather data about yourself, you learn to judge those habits, you ask for guidance, insight. You ask my being, my God, show me what I need to change in myself. Help me to see my errors. Help me to understand this anger that I, I witnessed in myself at my work. How can I change that? And then if you concentrate on that question, relax, wait. When the mind is serene, suddenly insight comes. Like a Experience. Sometimes insight emerges as a type of like aha moment. We suddenly understand that condition. And then you don't have to, and then you realize that you, 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 you're liberated from that element to a degree. And at that moment, you ask for help. You ask my divine mother, my inner goddess, as we've explained in this course, help me to eliminate this desire. And in many cases, that ego doesn't get eliminated right away, but gradually. So you'll see progress day by day. And you know that there's change occurring when you reach the same situation in your life, same people, same circumstances, because things repeat mechanically. You don't react like you did. And then you don't have to uh, perpetuate a certain, eye, a certain dynamic of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, where you get mad at someone, they get mad at you, and there's an aggression that builds up and pain for everyone. But I know in, my, in the case of my new job that I've been working at, I had to work with very difficult people. Very challenging. And I know that one thing I've been working on is my inner judgment. Uh, finding the right psychological state to engage with in order to help the people I'm working with. So what happened was I've been meditating and training day by day, asking my inner God, show me what I need to do. How do I act with these people in this situation, in this circumstance? And I've been finding, I've been getting insight where naturally, when being and working on certain defects of mine, where I've been going to work, facing the same people, and when I've been treated disrespectfully, respond with love, with patience. And patience and love are much more crushing forces than anger. Because you respond with anger, the other person is going to retaliate in the same way, and the cycle repeats. But if you're patient with that person, kind, and that naturally appears in you spontaneously, without force, without expectation. Suddenly the, you realize that those, those people who are your enemies become your friends. And you change everything. 
And then you stop suffering, you stop making the other person suffer. That's judgment. When you see in yourself what needs to change and then you work on it day by day. But that, of course, occurs when we comprehend our psychological states. It doesn't occur overnight. And many times we have to struggle and, and suffer a lot with mistakes until we get it. And then when you get it right, the situation is transformed. You notice that people always want to change things externally, change the, change the job work environment, get a new job, do something else. But we tend to carry the psychological disease with us of suffering, wanting everyone to change but us. But if we find that we change ourselves, then the other people, I've had people you know, say to me, or certain people I've worked with, you know, how did you, how did you manage to change the situation? I had my boss ask me that. And I, I didn't, you know, she says, I don't, I don't know what your secret is. I just kept silent because, you know, some things I you know, won't talk about with an employer. You know, I can't tell my employer that I worked on my ego with my divine mother. You know, some people will <laughs> think I'm nuts. But, I, but, they see, but they see the results and they feel the results and they say, this is, this is amazing. And they say, how did you do it? I said, well, I do mention I teach meditation and yoga. And it's a very easy answer for people to understand. And they say, okay, it's good. But... You know, if you make, a, you make the changes you need to change, then the pieces externally will, will situate themselves. And then you won't have to you know, feel depleted and worried about going to work or doing certain things or being with certain people. You don't try to change the other person with force, with coercion. But instead, you change your psychological habits. And that's how you walk the path of judgment, as some island of your quote I quoted at the end of this lecture. Inner judgment is what leads you on the upright path, meaning you, know, you don't suffer so much unnecessarily. So meditation will unfold naturally for you when you um, see how it applies to your life. Because if you don't see how it benefits, if there's no benefit, that's why people leave. People stop practicing meditation because they don't see results. So the question is not the technique, it's the mind. How effective are the methods if we're using any method? But also... When the method is effective, what is our application of it? What is our daily discipline? How is it applying to our life? Because if, it, you know, if our spirituality doesn't apply to when we go to work or talk with friends or in the bedroom or whatnot, if our spirituality is divorced from every aspect of our life, it isn't spiritual. It's just an excuse we tell ourselves because we continue to engage in negative habits. So if you want to learn how to meditate, I, I recommend you study uh, some of our other resources we have available on our website, chicagonosis.org. And uh, we give a few courses. One of them, which is very introductory like this, is, uh, is known as the Sufi Path of Self-Knowledge, but also Gnostic Meditation. So I right, thank you for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org.
We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.